0: Good evening, and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. Again, that's 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over nine years. I'm ready to answer your questions about birds this evening, so let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. So we're going to start with a recap of last month's conservation tip. We ended last month's episode with a tip of how to spice up your travels. And as travelers that are investigating where they're going, you, you always look into, you know, where's the hotel, what kind of restaurants, maybe there's a sporting event, check out if there's any concerts, shopping opportunities, historical sites to visit. But what about outdoor hotspots to visit? So we talked about the birding trails and the wildlife trails and these are things you as an outdoor enthusiast could look up to where you're planning to travel and and look for maybe a site or two that you might be traveling for work and you need to detox and get outside get some fresh air maybe your meeting starts at 10 a.m and you can get out there at 8 a.m and go bird watching or hiking or looking for butterflies whatever it is the point is, look for a birding or wildlife trail to where you're traveling to, and, and including in your own backyard, so to speak, in the area you live, you'll have s- possibly some really neat hot spots to visit. So birding trails, these aren't big hiking trails per se. They're, they're just linking up hot spots to go to, parks and refuges, and even private sites that you wouldn't know about because they're not publicly owned. and so there might be hiking involved so maybe some little walking involved but it's not i don't want people to think it's like the appalachian trail where you got to get the right boots and you're probably going to go through three pairs of those boots and you need 6 months to hike it that's not what we're talking about we're talking about stops along the way where you can go look look for nature it might be uh, a hot spot for birds it might be butterfly gardens Um, It might be a prairie prairie dog town up at the Panhandle of Texas, for example, or in Central Texas we have some places where bats emerge from caves where people line up at dusk and see the bats come out. And it's just a a great way to jazz up your your travels. So again, visit a birding or wildlife trail near you. We profile a different species each month. And this month we're profiling what i'd call a feisty and approachable winter resident in our listening area called the ruby crown kinglet let's listen to the call notes that one can hear often in fall winter and early spring here in the southeast the ruby crown kinglet Not very musical, just a little chatter. And they're, they're noisy little guys. Maybe you've heard this. Let's keep listening. So, those are the call notes of the Ruby Crown Kinglet. This bird is tiny in size, but big in personality. They're often found in onesies or twosies low in trees or shrubs including urban backyards. They'll often forage in the shrubs right outside your kitchen window. The species breeds in summer across much of Canada, Alaska, and the Rocky Mountains while wintering along the entire southern U.S. They typically arrive in our listening area starting in late September and early October, then overwinter with us until most individuals depart north by mid-spring. So look look for them in the south during the cooler months of the year. The name kinglet means little king because it's wearing a crown of brilliant red. That ruby crown is found only on the males, which they can fully conceal until the bird becomes excited or upset. When that happens, what looks like a tiny bright red cotton ball will fluff up on the head, top of the head of the male. Once he's relaxed, he'll lower that red crown where it's often impossible to see any of the red as it's laid flat, or it's as if the ruby crown has returned to some sort of secret chamber on the bird's head until the next bout of excitement. Kinglets are busy, always on the move, and they glean leaves and limbs for tiny invertebrates, especially insects and spiders, to eat. This species has the distinct habit of rapidly flicking its wings while perched and foraging among the branches, this behavioral clue can often help with the identification of an otherwise tiny drab olive-colored bird with white wing bars. To see two photos snapped by James Childress showing a male ruby-crowned kinglet, one with its crown partially flared and another with its crown completely concealed, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org the cute little ruby crown kinglet he's one of my favorites and I have to mention that when I was leaving the house today I had a ruby crown kinglet event which was pretty spectacular so I, I knew of course that we are going to profile that bird and I'm driving out my driveway and f- boom this thing f- flies in front of me lands in a pawpaw tree right next to my driveway at eye level, lets me pull up, it's a Ruby Crown Kinglet. He's looking at me, I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking he has no idea that I'm going to profile him. And maybe he did. Maybe he's like, go Cliff, go Cliff, go. Put in a good word for the Ruby Crown Kinglet. But I'm telling you, that that happened today. And, and I have not had that kind of encounter um, with a Ruby Crown Kinglet. So pretty special. And maybe it sounds a little nerdy, but I, I think he was there to root me on, what do you think? So tonight, I'm excited. We have an in-studio guest. We have Tyler Wayland. He's with the Caesar Clayburg Wildlife Research Institute. And Tyler is the Assistant Director of the Texas Native Seeds Program. He's based in East Texas. And he's, he's a range management specialist. So Tyler, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Cliff. Um, I'm excited to be here. I've been told many times in my life that I have a face for radio, so. Yeah. I'm excited to test it out.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I'm just glad you put clothes on, because that's another thing about radio. You, you don't have to be fully dressed if you don't want to, but I'm glad you are.
1: Right. I just felt like maybe big day, put on some clothes. Yeah,
0: and at least some shoes. So. Shoes. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's good. I'm, I'm glad we could get you here and, and and in a in a state that we can show you off publicly, even though we're on the radio. Appropriate attire. Appropriate, right. So thanks for coming, Tyler. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. You know, the brief bio sketch we all have to give at meetings and so forth. You know Where you're born, where you've lived, where you went to school, family life, hobbies, and so forth. So let's hear it.
1: Right. Um, Depending who I'm talking to uh, really determines where I start my story. So now being in East Texas, I'm quick to claim the fact that I was born in Beaumont, Texas. I'm one of three kids, middle child, I've got an older sister. Are you the favorite child? I am the favorite okay. child. Okay. Um, they may be listening, so it may be rough for them to hear. Yeah, you know what, Christmas is over. Christmas is over, they New Year. Deal with it. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Okay. So born in Beaumont, wasn't there for too long. Uh, my dad worked for a Christian Outreach known as Young Life, and my mother's a, was a teacher. And so work took us to Corpus Christi, Texas, down in South Texas. That's the part of my childhood I remember. Uh, My dad's family grew up there, he he was raised there, and so I got to grow up with my cousins. His parents had a small place outside of George West, Texas. Mm. We called it The Ranch. Mm. So spent some childhood time at the ranch riding horses, hunting. Spend some time outdoors.
0: Now there, no, there's no small
1: ranches in George West, so come on, let's hear how
0: many. Right, records.
1: right. It's, we, we call it a ranchette, about 300, 350 yeah. acres south of town. Uh, it's a nice triangle if you're going to look at a map. If you go south on 59 and then I guess to the northeast, I guess Cardinal Directions on radio, live radio is tough, but it's 281 and 59 make yeah. a triangle. And right there in the heart of that triangle was this ranch, and I mean, We loved it. My dad uh, grew up his high school years going out there and they built a barn, Uh, grandfather built the house, built a corral, cleared some brush, good childhood. That's neat. Yeah
0: those kind of childhoods lead people often into the position that you have that we're going to talk about next and that's you know I mentioned you're with Cesar Kleberg Wildlife Research Institute which is probably going to be a new term for a lot of folks you'll need to describe what that Institute is and where it's based and but tell us about your position um, with the Texas Native Seeds Program and where you office, and just overall, just tell us about Caesar Clayburgh and your position.
1: Okay, so down in South Texas, Kingsville, Texas, uh, there's a university, Texas A&M University, Kingsville. Some folks may remember it as Texas A&I. Uh, within the university is the Caesar Clayburgh Wildlife Research Institute, uh, premier institute, wildlife institute, uh, founded in early 80s. Uh, in honor of Caesar Clayburg, he was a pioneer conservationist. We may hear names as Teddy Roosevelt or John Muir. This is those are national names. Uh, Mr. Clayburg, wha- he has his roots in South Texas. And so, Great. early eighties, the Caesar Clayburg Foundation uh, sponsored the formation of the Institute. Within the Institute is a statewide program known as Texas Native Seeds, and it's the mission of Texas Native Seeds to develop and promote regionally adapted native seed sources for restoration. Um, When we talk about native species, we're talking about native grasses and forbs, uh, native being, they were here pre-European settlement. Um, When we want to revegetate, restore land, following disturbance, ideally, uh, we'd like to use native species. Mm -hmm. One of the limiting factors in that is the seed supply, native seed supply. And so our program, statewide program, made up of six regions. Uh, Specifically, I'm in East Texas with the East Texas Natives Project. But our focus is developing and making available these native seed sources for commercial production.
0: Great. So you report to Kingsville, but you're based in East Texas. That's a pretty good
1: stretch. What is that, seven hour drive? It's a seven hour drive. Uh, Leave at the right time, get through Houston. Yeah. Seven, eight hours, stop at a Bucky's. There you go. Refuel. Yeah. Refuel.
0: So, where else does Kingsville reach out for? I, I
1: know they have projects in, in Latin America and Mexico. Right. Hawaii. Oh, wow. Right. Um, I think the numbers to date: faculty, 20 faculty members, same number of uh, research staff, 60 graduate students coming wow. from probably 44 different states: Hawaii, uh, the UK. Um, as far as stretch all over Texas, mentioned Hawaii, studying anything from, from lizards to the Texas tortoise, bobwhite quail, ocelots, jaguarundis, the cats, and uh, a, large, a large portion of the institute is looking at habitat restoration. I think 50,000 foot flyover, when we talk about wildlife and populations, uh, we need good quality habitat we're losing habitat. And uh, so restoration, how to restore land, best practices, the methodology behind it in order to make it economically efficient and successful.
0: So you, you mentioned native seeds. So just think about, you know, a generation ago, biologists, very few were talking about native stuff. And a prime example is your program or anything like it didn't exist a generation ago. And, and and so we we as ecologists are coming around and trying to realize that hey part of the problem <clears throat> are are these non natives uh, species that are you know the reason why we don't have bob white the reason why loggerhead shrikes are declining and so forth and so that's that you know it's iterative we're we're constantly learning new things but I'm telling you before I, before my career you know this predates me that. Those biologists, they did very little, many of them did very little in the name of native. And, and you can see it in the bird world, they were dumping all these different gallinaceous birds out there on the landscape to, to try to get, you know, coternix quail and Himalayan snowcocks and all these silly birds that belong elsewhere on the planet, not here, and trying to make them work. And guess what, N- none of it worked. So the beauty of natives with plants or animals is they're supposed to be here, and if we haven't screwed it up fully, we can get them back. And I think you're probably seeing that.
1: Yes, right. We, if they these these are species that evolved here, evolved in the climate, evolved um, in the habitat. Wildlife depends on these. When we're talking about plants, depends on these species. And so ideally, they they're the ideal species to work with. I think what you're getting at too is what we see five decades, six decades ago, um, if we look at the, the seed market in general, the commercial seed market, there was not many, if any, native seed options. Um, we, we, we went out and we, we found exotic plants or introduced species to solve single problems, whether it was erosion control, drought, drought tolerance, forage production. Um, at the time in Texas, drought was an issue and, and we bring in these exotic grasses or these introduced species um, and they worked very well. They, they they served their purpose. Again, erosion control, forage production. But now what we're seeing 50, 60 years later are the unintended consequences from those. Mm-hmm. And, and unlike um, in the, in the 60s and 70s we're starting to see more of a commercial seed market a commercial it's native great. seed market and 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 so we're, we're making the the ability to do that kind of restoration yeah. more available i think
0: that's great you're listening to bird calls i'm cliff shackleford i'm in the studio with tyler wayland this is red river radio this is a call-in show if you'd like to ask a question to me or to tyler the number here is 800-552-8502 again 800-552-8502 uh, so moving along so Tyler tell us uh, you mentioned the ranch I'm sure that was instrumental in getting you to work in the outdoors um, what else got you in, was there an early person influencer
1: um, what else got you involved well stepping back a little bit so when we were in Corpus Christi we were there for like, probably about five years uh, work again took our family to College Station and then into Northwest Houston in the spring area a large, large part of my childhood, probably 10 years uh, in the Houston area. At the end of my high school career, I had the opportunity to move back uh, down into South Texas to George West to live with my grandmother. She was coming um, out of a summer that was pretty rough with a ranch manager at the time. Um, her health was starting to decline and I had an opportunity to go uh, live down there with her and the ranch manager that she brought in, um, Robert Cruz Sr. Mm. Uh, he, he had a huge impact on my life, getting to hang out with him every day. Um, he was an older gentleman, great uh, great knowledge of the land, of the area, and two or three years hanging out with Robert, I just knew that's what I wanted to yeah. do. If it, was, if it was helping somebody manage their land or um, habitat-wise, that was the problem that I wanted to solve. That's awesome. And so that's, that's kind of where I got in. I did a stint in the Navy between then and now and so i got out of the navy and my wife and i moved down to kingsville and that's how i got linked up with the uh, institute
0: wow all right well that's a pretty cool story and and i I thought i'd mention that (coughs) you, you you named a city which is confusing maybe for people that don't know the greater houston area spring is a city
1: spring is a city and
0: not just a season
1: no it is uh northwest houston i think Spring is along I-45. We're a little west in the Klein area, mm-hmm. south of Tomball, the bustling metropolitan area. Yeah,
0: they're all blended together now and it all is. just one big, massive city. But, hey, we've got our first caller. We've got Beverly from Shreveport. Hello, Beverly. Hey, Cliff, it's
2: me, Beverly Burden.
0: Uh, from What's Bugging You. All right. We have a celebrity calling. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Well, I I um, what's your opinion on this? Last spring, I passed
2: by an area that has a little slough, a little bayou, mm-hmm. and a bunch of telephone wires, and I would see maybe almost every other day this wonderful kingfisher, and then I stopped seeing it during the summer, and then it, and then a kingfisher at the exact same location mm. showed up this this fall, late winter, early fall, yeah. uh, late. What's the
0: probability it's the same specimen? There's a a good chance, but what you witnessed was migration at its best because most of our kingfishers leave us in the hot breeding season of the summer and go north to breed. Not all of them. We have some that stay locally. But you notice it in the fall, a big influx. So he disappeared, you know – I always wonder, you know, people wonder when something disappears, did it get hit by a car? Did, did it die? No, he migrated north. So that's really cool that he came back. The chances are high that it's, it's got site fidelity, that it knows where to go, it, it likes that area and, and returned. But honestly, as you know, it, if we can't mark that individual, we don't know that that's Bob. And we don't know that Bob is coming back. It could be Greg or Susie, and and that's another thing. It, you know, well, actually, kingfishers are are dimorphic. You can tell the the males from the females, but we can't tell if it's if it's that individual that we could lovingly call Bob. So, uh, but no. So, what's bugging you while, while we got you on the phone, Beverly? We're going to do our joint episode in April, early April, so I'm excited that we're going to do probably our, I don't even know, is it our sixth or seventh one?
1: I'd have to go back and chart it, Cliff. I think
0: I think I have it right here if I can get a little distraction while you're
2: looking here. That up, while you're looking that up, I saw something new again this year, and that is a creeper. I've never seen a bird oh. go head, head first down a tree trunk.
0: Well, head, head first was probably a nut hatch. Creepers don't go head first down. So I bet you had a nut hatch. Okay. Yeah. And so, and I don't, I don't have my notes to tell me which uh, annual episode we're going to do. For, for listeners that don't know, we have another show called What's Bugging You. And the person on the line is Dr. Beverly Burden, who is the entomologist at LSUS. And she hosts that radio show. And Six or seven years ago, she and I got together and said, hey, why don't we blend the two shows together, and we lovingly lovingly call it the Birds and the Bees episode. So that's what we're talking about that will happen in in April, the second Tuesday of April. So we're we're glad to hear you on the phone, uh, Dr. Burden. And and you have anything else for us besides Kingfisher's? No, that's
2: pretty much it. I hope you guys have a great show, and I want to welcome your guest to Red River Radio.
1: i'm going to hang
0: up okay good to hear from you thanks so much for the call
1: okay
0: thank you okay tyler let's get back to to caesar clayberg um so there's a wide variety of conservation projects that caesar clayberg does you mentioned reaching out to not only east texas but hawaii that's amazing And, and and latin america as well um Tell, tell us some details about some of those. Um, and I know you're not involved in them,
1: but you, at least you should know and let us know what, what you know about them. Right. Um, the biggest thing that I've, I've been paying attention to a lot with the Institute is the work with the drones. Oh. And that kind of reaches across a lot of different uh, sectors of research, whether that's sampling, monitoring, projects like that. Uh, Botswana. Botswana. Wow, is that Africa? Yeah, landlocked country. Yeah, I think they're looking at jaguar population.
0: No jaguars in Africa. No jaguars. Yeah, what's l- the maybe ja- leopards? Leopards. Yeah, jaguars are strictly New World. So, what's
1: what's the leopard? What did they get their spot? There's
0: the an Af- the African leopard, leopard that looks very jaguarish, but it, it's it's there. Those two are separated by a big ocean. Big ocean. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's cool that, that there's projects in Botswana. So are you going to try to figure out how you can get over there and help out? You know, do they need someone to carry luggage, maybe carry water in the field? I mean, you should, you should really reach to I'm a, that level to get like out there. I feel I'm a team
1: driver. I oh. think they've got, they've got to have some cool vehicles. So you wanna, you,
0: you, you're not going to start as a water boy. You want to no. start off as a driver. I'm a
1: driver. Give oh. me a radio. Air conditioning? I don't need air conditioning. Oh, you don't. Okay. I don't need air conditioning. Oh, cuz they they've got it. Yeah. I'm a big cat fan. Yeah. You know. Big and, and leopards.
0: And and you mean the cats big, not that you're big into it, or do you mean both?
1: I'm a fan of big cats. Okay. Okay, I
0: get you. And leopards are big.
1: Leopards are big. And jaguars
0: are big. Jaguars are big. But do,
1: have you been to the Lufkin Zoo?
0: I have. Those are jaguars. Those are jaguars. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and new world. and and yeah, and the jaguar is the one that has the melanistic individuals on a very rare occasion. I'm not sure I've ever heard of a black leopard. I don't think they come in a melanistic form. So. Okay. So, yeah, the Lufkin Zoo maybe still has a black individual. It's a melanistic jaguar. And actually, if you look at their exhibit, it's got um, maybe an Aztec or Mayan ruin, which also suggests new world. So. Yeah, but it, if if you if you want to challenge me on this, we can. I don't challenge. We, we can go to Botswana together. The odds
1: the odds that I was going to get that animal wrong, uh, were high. Okay, I'm just
0: I'm suggesting we go together and figure the answer out on our own. I you mean, know, you can drive I and I'll, s- I'll be the
1: water boy. I know some people. Okay, we c- we can get on a we can get on a plane. We can make a trip. I, I,
0: I'm fine with you being the driver and me being the water boy. If it gets me to Botswana and I can see a leopard and some other cool stuff, especially some birds. I'm there. All right, we are on we're talking birds and habitat restoration. This is Bird Calls on Red River Radio. If you have a question for us, my guest is Tyler Wayland and the phone number here for you to call in is 800 One more time, 800-552-8502. The first 3 numbers are easy to remember. 800-552-8502. How about that? All right, Tyler, tell us about some of the other jobs you've had during your working career and ha- how you ended up at Caesar Claiborne. You mentioned already the naval connection. Okay. So and, and, and then
1: how you got to East Texas. I mean, it's right. just, it's pretty cool. Okay, so. so I've had a couple different jobs. Um, I got to spend a summer in Colorado at a guest ranch, helping lead folks on horseback rides in the Colorado mountains, dude ranch, dude ranch ish. Uh-huh. Um, we got to see some bears, horses, riding horses, uh, great time. That was a summer came back from that and, uh, went back to spring started working for an erosion control company and, uh, it was, Hey, I need a job and I'm willing to work. And so they said, okay, here's the bottom, start there. And I started with weed-eating the bottoms of bayou ditches across Mm. the greater Houston area.
0: Wow. Because they want that water to get out of there when it floods.
1: And we need to to mow it down. You can't get a tractor in there. No, But you can get five or six individuals lined up in a row and uh, start weed-eating. Yeah. It's intense.
0: Did you ever think about where you did that Think about years later in 2017 or 18 when Hurricane Harvey came, and you would have been 30 feet underwater. Oh, it would Probably. have been rough. Yeah.
1: Story gets better. Oh. Uh, sh- got moved up from the weed eating crew to the construction crew. Got moved up from the construction crew to the office crew. I worked my way up and was an account manager for this erosion control company. My job was to grow Bermuda grass.
0: Wow, as an account manager.
1: We I, I managed the homeowners associations Mm -hmm. and the municipal water districts Ah. they have these retention ponds in these neighborhoods and stormwater quality you've got to keep them maintained zero erosion runoff and so we would uh find new business and and keep mowing ironically i managed the account uh of the bottoms that we weeded it wow okay full circle yeah and did you you didn't do anything
0: nefarious with these accounts, did you? you? Didn't like keep a little bit or anything?
1: No, we uh we we were pushing to weed eat less, less mm-hmm. hand work, mm-hmm. more mowing, but uh, we had to weed eat what we could. Yeah, and then then uh, then I got I got done with that and I moved into the navy. One day I woke up and said, "I'm young, I'm fit, for the most part. <laughs> Let me go serve the country." So I joined the navy. Worked in the unit called the Beachmasters. You heard of the Beachmasters? No. D-Day, they storm the beaches okay. with these flat bottom boats. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. Stab the beach. High tide, low tide, boats get stuck on the beach. And you train for that? And you push them off with tractors or bulldozers. Neat. And so we would do ship to shore movement, Yeah. whether it's food, fuel, or water from ship to shore, or evacuations or dropping Marines off on beaches, any beach, any time was the motto.
0: Did you train for that in any kind, every kind of tide, whether it high, low, win- high, windy? Low.
1: There are certain conditions <laughs> that we wouldn't train in, mm-hmm. um, but obviously on deployments, if it, if, it, if the time came, we would uh, we'd get the job done.
0: Even in a hurricane, you'd have to figure out how to do it, huh? It,
1: right. Yeah. So got out of the Navy and uh, wanted to go back to school. And so married by that point, got married while I was in the Navy, and uh, my wife and I, we moved from San Diego, California, to Kingsville, Texas. And uh, I knew that I wanted to do something outdoors and something with grasses, and I found this project called the South Texas Natives Project. Um, And as a student worker, I worked with the South Texas Natives Project that then expanded into the Texas Native Seeds Program. I remember Paula, who... who who started working there yep i knew paula she was there that was before my time Mm -hmm. i came in they had actually already expanded into central and west texas when i came in um but as the time i was finishing they were rounding out the state with the coastal prairies project Mm -hmm. the permian basin panhandle project and the east texas project
0: well we're glad we're glad you moved over into east texas glad to have you so you're listening to bird calls This is Cliff Shackleford. The phone number here is 800-552-8502. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Michael from Falk. That's in Arkansas, I believe. Michael, what do you got for us?
2: I got a question for Tyler tonight, Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'm looking, this is an either or or question. I'm looking to plant some milkweed, and I guess it would be this spring. Either... I'm looking for a seed that's going to do well in this part of the country is my specific question and either where do I go to get it or what kind of seed, you know, XX milkweed that would do good in this part of the country or failing those two, can you tell me what organization or something that I could go to to get the question answered?
1: Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. It's a great question and uh, you hit on something that our program is trying to tackle and it's making regionally adapted native seed sources available. Um, the downside of that is that's what we're working on and so it would be tough to find something locally adapted uh, specific to your area unless it's something what we would call wild harvest where you're out there finding the milkweeds collecting that seed. Um, I know that our program in South Texas the South Texas Natives Project has worked with milkweed a little bit and there are some uh, commercially available sources from Texas seed growers Um, just Googling native seeds in Texas or Texas native seeds, um, you could find a list of some of the commercial growers we work with, uh, that could get your, you could get your hands on some milkweed seed.
0: Even if he's in Arkansas.
1: I think even if he's in Arkansas, just because it's going to be limited. I know that there's an Arkansas native seed project. Um, you could Google the Arkansas native seed project and they could maybe point you in the right direction. Um, that's the tough part is, is it's not all readily available and so we get into this position of of what's available what works best
0: yeah and back in to milkweeds in texas i th- think last time i looked there was 39 species plus or minus of milkweeds across the state so so michael you're right on target you, you asked a very good question um and then the answer as tyler's giving it is is you've got to figure out what fits for your climate for your soil type and and milkweed is is there's just there's many many kinds as i mentioned there's almost 40 species i think last time i checked in texas so lots of different kinds and they're you know they're scattered around a state that goes from eight inches in the west to 60 plus inches in the east part of the state so there's a huge gradient of rainfall um so arkansas you're I would think if you find one that, that works in the West Gulf Coastal Plain, which is where we are here in the Shreveport area, the Piney Woods, it would probably work for, for where you are there in Arkansas.
1: And I think you're on target, Michael, with planning date as well. If it's if it's not now, then into early spring, my take is get it in the ground as soon as possible uh, so it can sit and capitalize on any spring rain, spring moisture we get. Okay. Thank you both. And Michael,
0: hold oh, on. Hold on, Michael, I, I thought I'd ask you to tell listeners what the the objective is for milkweed i mean most of us know why we want milkweed but michael you tell us why we want milkweed
2: i'm trying to get some monarch butterflies there you go uh, Mm -hmm. give them a place where they can rest on their migration and get something to eat and travel on
0: very good so it's the host plant the preferred host plant of the monarch butterfly and it's a species that's in in decline and so when people like you michael and others can do something to help um at whatever scale even at a backyard scale uh we all know that monarchs are going to come into the city they're going to come into the rural areas as well so uh kudos to you michael for the, what you're doing and that was a great question and uh you got anything else for us while we got you on the line that's all thank you okay. well for helping Th- thank you michael very good You're listening to Bird Calls on Red River Radio. I'm Cliff Shackleford. My guest is Tyler Wayland. We would love to hear from you. The number here is 1-800-552-8502. So Tyler, um, in your dealings around the the US, what do you think some of the top conservation issues you see that need to be addressed? In other words, what plant communities or what we call habitat types across either the region here or the country do you think need the most attention for restoring?
1: That's a good question. I would say um, some top conservation issues, uh, the spread of exotic and invasive species, uh, plants and animals, but in my world, plants. uh, We hit on it a little bit, um, but introduce grasses that uh, can come into an area and um, create monoculture stands. I think the threat is loss of diversity. And when, we, uh, when, the, when the spread of exotics and invasives increase, we decrease diversity. And that would lead me to the second conservation issue I think is of concern is uh, habitat fragmentation. Mm-hmm. We've got a growing population. We need to um, feed and clothe uh, that growing population. And so we are starting to lose or habitat's starting to fragment and so both of those probably work together. Um, that development, that increases, increases the use of non-natives, and uh, the problem just continues to spiral out. Yeah. Plant communities, um, <coughs> I'm in East Texas, this West Gulf Coastal Plain. Um, I'm, I work a lot with uh, the longleaf pine system, mm-hmm. or the leaf pine that open pine system. Mm-hmm. The fire evolved <coughs> uh, habitat, that fire evolved ecosystem, uh, it's driven high di- di- uh, biodiversity in the forest floor uh, because of the fire, and and last caller Michael talking about the monarch butterflies. We need those insects. We need the the birds, the bees. We need the uh, the wildlife, and this open pine system uh, is pretty valuable to that. I think any forested system is is valuable. Yeah, but uh, diversity again. Right. So
0: and, and we've. We've mentioned this on the show before, if you're wondering why we should care about pollinators, um, I have a feeling that every listener out there, whether they realize it or not, are at the mercy of pollinators. If you like to eat and drink most foods, you, you can thank a pollinator. If you like coffee, if you like chocolate, if you like agave to make into tequila, if you like teas, if you like mangoes and apples, and so many other fruits and vegetables, you can thank a pollinator. So if you don't think pollination is an issue and if pollinator species are in decline, how does that affect you? Well, we're going to get very skinny. Right. Very skinny if we don't have pollinators. So uh, so thanks to the pollinators for working for us for free, creating things that we all need, like like those things I mentioned, coffee, tea, chocolate, et cetera. Some, of, some grapes that we turn into wine. So I think that just beverages, a lot of listeners might be like, oh, man, if we don't have pollinators, I'm stuck with water and nothing else. Well, you can put a little, you know, you want to put a little lemon in it? Boom, pollinator. Got to have a pollinator for the citrus. So, yeah, it'll be plain Jane water, and it'll be very boring. So we thank need, you, pollinators. We need the
1: pollinators. Yes, sir, we, we do. That's right.
0: Oh, we've got another caller. We've got Sarah on the line from Etoile, Texas. Sarah, what do you have for us?
2: Hey there. Um, my husband and I manage. And tell me if I cut out because our, our service is a little spotty around here. Well,
1: if if it, if you're in Texas here, if, if, I feel your pain. Well,
0: here, here's the thing, Sarah. If it's a really tough question, we're going to cut you off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God,
1: keep yeah. it Good easy. Idea. Keep it
0: easy. Yeah. So keep Good it. <laughs>
2: Well, um, so my husband and I manage um, around 54 acres here in Etoil for timber and wildlife, do prescribed burns. And this, starting in November, we started to find um, eastern wild turkey on our game cameras. Um, And so we were, you know, very excited. And um, they were appearing in two log sets. So you had that clearing accompanied with the surrounding timber but do you have any advice on some native grass species we could you know, um, reseed in those log sets that would benefit the turkey and other species?
1: Yes, ma'am, great question. Really good. Um, and, and that's something that I see, that I hear about quite a bit is those log sets. People ask uh, in my timberland, What's a good area to seed, and log sets are one of them. A uh, couple species, uh, unlike the last color, I can, I can give you a little bit more specifics on but Pine Hill Little Blue Stem. There's a uh, seed source available. Actually, uh, one of the growers um, out of Kentucky is growing it, Roundstone Native Seed. They have Pine Hill Little Blue Stem. You got a little blue stem, uh, Coastal Plains Germplasm Little Blue Stem. Those are two uh, dominant grasses that would work well in your area. Um, as far as the forbs and the flower side of things, um, there's probably a, uh, a mix that can be created, a custom mix. If you talk to any, as, for anybody, if you, if you get in touch with these native seed growers, tell them where you are, soil type, they, they can customize a mix for you. And a lot of the times when it comes to those flowers and forbs, that's the best option. Uh, but both the Coastal Plains Germplasm Blue Stem and the Pine Hill Blue Stem are East Texas regionally adapted seed mm-hmm. sources,
0: and, and super important during the, the the rearing of the young of the turkey. So, those open pine savannas are are super important in spring and summer. Um, that's where Mama takes her pulse and teaches them how to be a turkey. They're eating grasshoppers that are in in those grassy understory areas and and eating a few seeds too. So um, uh, Sarah, I I, I have to say that was a great question. I have a challenge for you. You're 54 acres, that's nothing to sneeze at. I I want you to add a couple zeros to your acreage because to hear what you're doing, we need more people like you out there. So, So I don't know what it'll take, maybe a second or third job Right. but but i think right. you could try you try to get a couple zeros on there because you you you're doing amazing stuff because in the first few seconds you said you're doing prescribed fire and boy my
1: my eyes lit right. up so kudos to you keep, great job keep singing that song uh a lot of people in east texas want to be like you sarah oh,
0: awesome
2: <laughs> thank uh, you oh, so much i uh, appreciate
0: it if, if you're lucky sarah tyler will sing some of those words i to will you.
1: sing a lot of songs about prescribed fire yes in East Texas. yes well
0: thank you for the call sarah appreciate it keep, right. and keep doing the keep doing what you're doing that's good stuff thank right. you thanks for the Take call care. thank you you're listening to bird calls on red river radio i on cliff shackleford i'm in studio guest here is tyler wayland We'd like to hear from you. There's a few minutes left, 800-552-8502. Again, 800-552-8502. So that's a good call that that we just took, because she mentioned turkey. And you mentioned earlier that your institute has a lot of quail, Bob White, northern Bob White quail people. So how do you think that what you're doing is benefiting Bob White? obviously other grassland birds. Can you elaborate a little bit on that?
1: Right, and maybe building off uh, the last question talking about conservation issues. Um, I think there's a lot, uh, I'm, and I'm not a quail expert, but I, I think I know that there's a lot of factors that play into that, into their decline, whether directly or indirectly. And I think one of those is habitat. And so um, being able to restore or convert land when needed, um is important Uh, how much restoration is is needed Uh, tens of thousands of acres large scale Um, and so that's that's kind of who we are looking at um, to reach is pipelines roadsides um, mitigation projects pipeline prairies is is kind of what we call it large scale areas that can be reseeded with natives uh, successfully restored and then connect remnant remaining habitats, so, mm-hmm. so the goal of the project is to enable that large-scale restoration.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned habitat fragmentation as your, your second conservation issue, mm-hmm. and that you just nailed it, that Bob White, and we've mentioned this on the show, they need giant chunks of real estate, so a few hundred acres won't cut it for a covey of quail for their whole life cycle and generations future quail they need big real estate so fragmentation of course is taking big chunks and whittling it down to maybe a quilt work or patchwork of smaller that smaller chunks that might not even be attached might be disjunct or therefore separated by um undesirable landscape like having to cross an open pasture or highway or something or a lake that didn't used to be there so yeah i think um Fragmentation, as you mentioned earlier, that that is a huge one. Where we 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 started with these big robust landscapes here, in in North America, and we've whittled it down to just little baby postage stamps. It might work for restoring little blue stem grasses, mm-hmm. but it, it's if you're wondering why we don't have quail and and what turkey need, um, those two gallinaceous birds need big chunks of real estate. So. If you have a few hundred acres you're you're basically protecting the equivalent of a bathroom and a closet in a house for for six people you you, don't, you haven't you know you haven't started with the living room the kitchen the bedrooms the garage and i'm putting it into terms where people can kind of grasp what i'm saying here mm-hmm. is that for us to live you can't live in a bathroom it's too small we, we you know, run over each other. Six people living in a bathroom. So we need square footage. Same thing with quail; they need acreage,
1: in, in the in the large category. And I and I hear about that. So n- newer to East Texas, five years into it, and as I learn uh, through my job and interacting with landowners and land managers, uh, there are efforts to connect remaining land yeah. that's valuable uh, public lands in East Texas, the Forest Service lands, state lands. Um, larger private landowners uh, i've heard of initiatives or or projects trying to piece that together to make that to get Mm -hmm. that habitat going
0: that's right so you you mentioned um of course everybody knows what grasses are we mentioned forb why don't you explain real briefly what a forb is and then go into my question is what's your favorite your personal favorite native grass and your personal favorite native Forb to work with and why? Okay,
1: so what I'm going to call a forb is a non-grass, herbaceous flowering plant. And that's F-O-R-B. F-O-R-B. Mm-hmm. Um, so flowers. Yep. Wildflowers, forbs, uh, non-grass plants. We
0: and we commonly have a term for them that is usually negative, weeds. Weeds. Would,
1: so weeds is tricky. Yeah. Weeds. Uh, I guess weed you'd call a weed something that doesn't belong. So a native grass essentially would be a weed in a introduced hayfield,
0: Where you didn't want it, it's an right. un- unwanted species. Unwanted species. Yeah. If your focus is you know, fatten up the cows, it might not be for or, you.
1: Or somebody's front yard, yeah. lawn, you have Soccer weeds. Soccer fields. Some of those weeds may be yeah. native, and I wouldn't call them a weed in, in, in yeah. what I do. So weed's tricky, but four, I think we're good with Non-grass flowering plants. Right. My favorite, um, one that I've been working with quite a bit, Rattlesnake Master.
0: Oh, that's a cool one.
1: Or, or is it Arringium yuccafolia? I don't know that. Uh, it may be. It I don't, may I don't be. speak Latin. Um, I try. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but it's a, it's a great plant. The reason I like it is it's on the top of a pollinator wish list talked about the Monarchs, uh, it's, a, it's a very desirable plant. Mm-hmm. Uh, more so, it holds its seed well. And so, if in my work, the end goal is delivering uh, a seed source to commercial growers so that they can make it available large scale. And there's a lot involved in that. And having a plant that can be farmed, if you will, they could be farmed for seed. Having a plant that holds its seed well, mm-hmm. uh, there's less risk in losing that seed. Hmm. Some plants may not hold their seed well or shatter seed in a day. You get a big rent you can't get in your field, you can't get a harvest. Uh,
0: they, they disappear to the soil. They disappear to the soil, yeah. and so
1: uh, plants that hold their seed well are attractive to me, and Rattlesnake Master is one of them. And it's a cool name. It's a cool name and it's a cool plant. It, yeah. it looks like nothing else. Yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of Rattlesnake Master, the grass. Uh, I'd have to say purple top tridents. Oh, nice. Some people would call that a weed. Yeah. A that's lot of right. people would call that a weed. Um, if anybody's in the Midwest, they may be cursing me right now. It's uh <laughs> it's a it's a cornfield weed maybe, but it's a beautiful purple seed head. We'll see it on the roadsides here, in Louisiana, believe Arkansas. Um, we'll see it on the roadsides, beautiful purple color. Also known as grease grass. hmm If you get a rub your hand on the seed head, mm-hmm. it'll be greasy. Nice. Grease grass.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think for me, I, I'm gonna answer that question. I wasn't planning to. I, I, what
1: are your favorite grasses? Uh, th- and th- thank you for asking.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Uh, you can't go wrong with little blue stem. It it's the most diverse, the most widespread, the most tolerant of every condition.
1: And it can be a landscape plant too.
0: Yeah, and it looks great. We we have we've had some in our yard, not right now, but we enjoyed having a prescribed burn of you know mm-hmm. six or eight clumps. Right now we have Gulf Coast muley, okay, and and so we burn that, and oh my gosh, you talk about a plume of smoke from, I don't know, what do we have, four to six plants, and it's a plume that you would think the house is burning down. It's It's a fast plume though, right? It's fast, yeah, it's it's thick and white. I mean, it's like Cool Whip, it's that thick, and it's coming up off that grass, and it's quick, but oh, we love it, and in our previous house, in, in in Travis County, we grew little blue stem and, and loved to do our prescribed yeah. burn. Um, so yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. That what a good one? Forb, uh, forb. I mean, y- you read in the literature about um, uh, all kinds of forbs that are really good for game birds. You know, um, uh, what's the l- little yellow one? I'm talking partridge I'm t- partridge pea uh it's everywhere though oh yeah croton it's everywhere Um, it's valuable though. it's It's valuable but what happens is you mentioned you know how they can get just invasive and just cover too much Mm -hmm. so but i I do like the plants that people can read about that have a connection to the the critter that they're trying to recover and in this case quail turkey etc i think those are important because then the natural thing is you you know you can't just deal with one or two. You eventually start branching out and and uh, and discovering all these other plants like you mentioned your rattlesnake master and and Michael called about the the uh, milkweed and you just it's just a natural evolution. You open this door and all of a sudden you realize God, there's a lot of neat plants out there that right. I can restore. So we like them all. You're listening to Bird Calls, this is Cliff Shackleford. We have just a few minutes left. Um, So if you squeeze in your call right now, we might be able to get to you at 800-552-8502. In the meantime, I've got some questions. Um, So let's talk a little bit about a changing climate, whether good or bad. How is that impacting the habitat restoration you're doing, um, climate change?
1: That's a good question. Uh, probably requires some speculation or assumption on my end, but um, if we're talking about warming climates, increasing temperature, average temperature, I start to think back about those exotic grasses we're talking about. They came from the temperate warmer climates, um, and so if we're seeing warmer ten- temperatures here, then then one would assume maybe that we're going to start to see their range expand. Um, a lot of the, the introduced Old World blue stems are, are drought tolerant, heat tolerant, and, and maybe we start to see them expand their range north, and um, that creates challenges. That's, that it's, again, it, it, it goes to what we're doing and the yeah. need for what we're doing, and so I could see where that will affect things. Um, and then as far as just talking about change and climate anyways, I think it we go back to how... Uh, what originated here, um, wh- what started here, what evolved here, yeah. what evolved through the change, and I think you're the best bet is natives. Yeah. Um, because our, what's the other option? And Bring something in that's introduced and 50, 60 years later, other unintended consequences. Yeah. Right? Is that
0: we've got a, a lot of experience already doing right. that, and so no question. And you'll see a lot of conservation papers now that are saying that the, the amount of land that introduced species of plants are taking up on the landscape are one of the top two or three reasons why we have declines in several species mm-hmm. is because you basically take in native habitat out of production and replace it with something else that you know for example bob white quail won't use so yeah we're, we're learning a lot as we go okay this is bird calls we're about to wrap up um, I think we've got one caller that's coming through. If if we hurry, we might be able to get to him. Um, yep, real quick. We've got Mike from Jefferson. We got thirty seconds, Mike. Go.
2: Oh, okay. Well, I just wanted to say we caught the oldest uh, uh, ruby Crown kinglet out of Tom Walker's one time. If you've ever been out there, and I wanted um, I wanted to know about. Uh, um, Temperature and bird mortality. I know it got really cold in the snowpocalypse, and seemed like we lost a lot of birds. But then it got cold recently, down to about 11 or less, and, yeah. and it didn't seem like we lost so many.
0: Yeah, we're we're going to have to save that question for a later date. So, real quick, I, I'm guessing you were banding with Jim Engold, who was the authority on ruby crown kinglets. He wrote the species. Yeah. He was the, he wrote the species account on on ruby crown kinglets some years ago. And he has since passed away, so he's the guru. Um, but thank you for the call, Mike. We're going to have to talk about Snowmageddon uh, another time. That's a very good topic. So Mike, call us back next episode, maybe if we have time, we will talk more about that. But in short, there's way more things killing our birds than cold weather. That's the bottom line. That's all. That's the takeaway message. There's way more things killing birds than cold weather. Um, so all right let's jump into our conservation tip Um, there there are uh, i'm going to profile or highlight three national bird conservation organizations there are many national conservation organizations working hard to protect our lands waters flora and fauna there are however far fewer focused just on birds i'd like to highlight three national bird conservation organizations here they're notable and worthy of our support both philosophically and financially. These three organizations focus almost solely on birds and bird conservation, and each has been discussed in past radio shows, the American Bird Conservancy, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and the National Audubon Society. They're not identical in what they tackle, which is better for our birds and the habitats they depend on. In my mind, each serves slightly different niches to avoid redundancy. For instance, the Cornell Lab produces an amazing array of free information, data gathering, and provides all sorts of tools and technology used by observers in the field. The American Bird Conservancy advocates at the highest levels for better laws, better protections, and sound solutions to protect birds that each of us can rally behind. The Audubon Society supports nature centers, especially in urban centers where people need to learn about birds because they're often detached from wild places. If you love birds and want to help with conserving them, dig into one or more of these conservation organizations to see how you can help. Do it for the birds. So, Tyler, I want to thank you for coming in. Appreciate that uh, your time tonight. I hope you had a good time. Thank you. This, I enjoyed it. This concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackleford, resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio. I, th- again, thank... Tyler, for coming in. He was our in-studio guest this evening. Bird Calls has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a Ruby Crown Kinglet was recorded by Paul Marvin and can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The two photos we use for that species on the Bird Calls webpage were snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. And remember, if you have a photo or sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, February 14th, which happens to be Valentine's Day. And remember, do it for the birds.